Hi there. This is Mark, of course, with a quick message before we start our show. A few topics in business right now are getting more attention than quiet quitting. And on one hand, quiet quitting sounds rather subversive, as if workers in mass are choosing to do as little work as possible and slacking off on the job. And when some managers hear about workers who are quiet quitting, they instinctively think, well, these people need to be written up or punished, or they're going to be the first ones to be laid off in a recession. But another way of thinking about quiet quitting is that it's an action being taken by some workers in direct response to how they feel they're being managed. In other words, these people are asking themselves, why should I do more? Why should I give more of myself to my job when I feel I'm getting so little in return? One of the principal reasons I wrote my book, Leave from the Heart, was to share research that explains why anyone would be motivated to give less discretionary effort to their job, and to specifically teach workplace managers how to re-inspire their employees to contribute to their fullest. The book, as many of you know, recently launched as an Amazon number one new release, and it's received numerous glowing reviews. And it's also guaranteed to help you build and sustain a cohesive and high-performing team, and I so hope you'll check it out. And for those of you who've already bought one or more copies of the book, thank you from the bottom of my heart. And now, on to our show. Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and let me extend a formal welcome to the Lead from the Heart podcast. It came as a surprise for me to learn that a lot of people who make it all the way to the top of their organizations and become CEO quickly fail and end up being replaced. According to the New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller, CEO Excellence, 30% of Fortune 500 CEOs are booted from their jobs in three years or less, and two out of five new CEOs are perceived to be failing within 18 months. So if you're like me, you might be wondering, well, what would lead so many newly promoted CEOs to underperform so badly? And how could they have so quickly missed the mark? Well, my guest today is McKinsey senior partner, Carolyn Dewar. And she asked a very different and actually much more useful question. What behaviors prove to distinguish the very best CEOs, the ones who have sustainably long and successful careers at the helm? Along with two other McKinsey colleagues, Carolyn identified over 2,400 public company CEOs before distilling that group into a much smaller elite core. And 67 of that final group agreed to in-depth, multi-hour interviews, including Microsoft's Satya Nadella, American Express's Ken Cheneau, Sony's Kazuo Harai, and General Motors' Mary Barra. And from what's been described as being frank, no-holds-barred conversations, the three McKinsey partners were able to pin down the uncommon mindsets these top-performing CEOs shared in common. And Carolyn Dewar joins us to discuss her book and to explore all that they discovered. As Carolyn repeatedly affirms in our conversation, the behaviors that define top CEOs actually proved to be the ones that define the top managers in almost all levels of an organization. And the leadership thinking Carolyn affirms is being critically needed in our workplace today has surprising resonance with pretty much all of the themes we address on this podcast. And with that, let me please welcome Carolyn Dewar to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I've been looking forward to this. We've been moving it around in our calendars a lot. So happy to be here with you. And I want to get right to it. In the past two decades, 30% of Fortune 500 CEOs have lasted less than three years in their role. Two in five failed in their first 18 months. And so my question to start off is, is this because of impatient investors? Like if you don't deliver quickly, you're out the door. Were they missing important skill sets? I mean, this strikes me as being rather high. You get into the job and you get axed or you leave it for whatever reason. So let's start there. Give us some context of why people aren't surviving that long in this job. Absolutely. And you're right. This is one where over time, the tenure has been creeping down, right? It's been getting shorter and shorter. And I suspect there's a number of things driving it. One, as you said, is the scrutiny on the role is higher than ever. And I think it's scrutiny from multiple sources. So it's not just 
shareholders and investors, which are obviously a critical stakeholder, but increasingly, and we'll get into it more later, your employees have a point of view, your regulators, the public at large, media. So there's both more stakeholders now opining on how you're doing in the job and the transparency of any mistake or misstep is even higher to all those stakeholders. So I suspect there's some of that as well. And then just the pace of change is so high in industries in general, right? So the rapid cycles of innovation required to stay ahead, whether it's in technology or or other industries, you don't have the long time horizons to prove yourself out the way you used to. It's just much more apparent early on whether your strategy and where you're taking the company is is paying off. Is this going to influence people in terms of their aspirations? Like, I mean, do you suspect that there'll be fewer people wanting to get into the CEO role? I wonder. I mean, I, I suspect there's a number of things that weigh in on people's aspiration. I would say I feel the role is getting, if anything, even harder and more complex and the scale is getting challenging. But I also think a lot of people are attracted to the amount of impact you can have in the role, right? The decisions that CEOs are making now probably have a broader reach than almost ever before. And your opportunity to shape the lives of your employees and the customers you serve. And so everyone's making their own trade-offs. So when these people leave, are they leaving because they're being shown the door or are they leaving because... They just feel like I can't do any more. They're exhausted. So I don't have the data. I mean, anecdotally, I think I've heard both experiences, right? But I don't have the data in terms of if there's a shift in what the cause is. Over the past 15 years, there have been 2,000 CEOs that have led the 1,000 largest companies at some point. And so tell us how you winnowed this list down to the top CEO leaders. So leadership is the cornerstone of this. They're not the top CEOs, they're the top CEO leaders. So describe the process and then maybe even tell us who are some of the people in the top 200 that we might all know and might maybe even who are some that didn't make the cut. Absolutely. So you're right. I mean, our main objective when we set out was to understand what do great CEOs do, right? How do they think? What do they do? How do they operate? And so the first question we had to answer is, well, who are the great CEOs? And we wanted to take a fairly broad view. So as you say, we took those approximately 2,000 CEOs and we put them through a number of filters. The first was a performance lens, right? And so we looked for folks who their company performance, their TRS, had been in the top, in most cases, top quintile, in some cases, top two quintiles relative to their peers. And so we wanted to account for the fact that certain industries deliver outsized returns versus others. So how well did your company perform in your tenure compared to your industry peers? That was the first filter. The second filter, because again, we were really looking for lessons learned from those who'd excelled in the role. We wanted people to have been in role for a long enough time that we could ascribe the track record to them, right? So Mm -hmm. they were in there long enough that it was in their leadership that they'd excelled, as well as that they'd been there long enough that they were having to live with some of the decisions they made earlier in their tenure, right? And so we filtered it for people who'd been in role at least six years, figuring that was enough time that they'd gotten through that initial hump, they'd gotten past that three-year mark that you mentioned, and they were into their second or third kind of S-curve as CEO. So that was another you know, big filter. And then we applied a couple of other more qualitative filters just on risk and reputation. In some cases, when a CEO had recently retired, we checked to make sure that the performance of the company continued well you know, in the near term after their retirement. It didn't fall off a cliff, right? Mm-hmm. And so there was a number of other factors, and that took us from the 2,000 down to about 200. And then of those 200, we had the privilege of spending time one-on-one, several hours each, with nearly 70. And it was really those stories from those 70 high performers that we really dove into to say, what do they do differently and how do they think differently? Oh, you got to go there. What are some of the stories you heard? What were some of the ones that inspired you? Well, I I mean, I think that's where we really came with, you know, the subtitle of the book is the six mindsets that distinguish the best leaders from the rest. And I think that's what really jumped out. You know, everyone has their own sets of habits and tactics for how they lead. But it was quite striking that when we looked across those 70 interviews, And they were across geographies around the world, across industry, across ownership structure. The piece that was consistently familiar was the way the CEOs were thinking, 
right? There were these prevailing mindsets that they all seem to embody. They may enact them slightly differently or operationalize them slightly differently, but there were some ways of thinking about the role, the impact they had in the role, what their job was and how they navigated. That really struck us and not just as excellent CEOs, but in some cases, it was sort of quite different from the prevailing wisdom of CEOs as well. So there were some differences in these real standout performers where they seemed to have a mindset that was even unique amongst CEOs. So you say there are six mindsets that distinguish them. So take us through some of them. Absolutely. So there's you know these six elements of the job. So even before we get to mindsets, essentially, what does it mean to be a CEO? What is the job? And it's the simplest level. You kind of set direction and strategy. You align the organization, which is all things culture, talent, team. You mobilize through leaders, right? Your top team and how you run the place. You engage with the board. You connect with your external stakeholders, and then you manage your own personal effectiveness. So it was against each of those six elements of the job that we said, well, what's the mindset? And maybe I'll, I'll pick just a couple and then we can we can dive into others. Pick the ones, Carolyn, that are really unique because setting direction clearly is one of the cornerstone requirements of a CEO. Of the six, were there some that are evolving that may not have been there five years ago, 10 years ago, that are emblematic of the environment that we're in or where we're heading? So as that as a framework, tell us about them. Let's do that. I love that. Maybe I'll pick three. So those elements of the role aren't really sort of the mindsets yet. The more interesting was how they thought about it. So let me pick three that are evolving. As it comes to setting direction, the mindset there was around being bold. Now, in some ways, that could feel very obvious. Of course, excellent CEOs are bold, but we really wanted to get into what does it look like to be bold as a CEO and maybe share two examples. One is the boldness where the role of the CEO, they can really reframe the game for the organization in terms of how they think about their purpose and what they're trying to get done. So if we take Ajay Banga's example at MasterCard, when he initially started almost a decade ago, all of the hallway chatter was about how do we be MX? How do we be Visa? How do we gain market share in the credit card market? And he as CEO kind of stepped back and said, well, that's all great. But when you rewind back a decade ago, the credit card market was still only about 8% of the world's transactions. Most transactions were happening in cash and in other ways. And he came back to his organization and said, actually, we need to reframe the game we're playing. We're not trying to win market share and credit card. That's thinking too small. Our game and the phrase he used was, how do we kill cash? Right. That's the bigger playing field we're on here. And it elevated the organization's thinking and, frankly, gave them permission to challenge some of the assumptions about what they would and wouldn't do and how boldly they could think. And with that as almost giving permission to the organization, they came up with all kinds of new business models, new ideas, online payment, debit card, all these other things. But it was that boldness as a CEO to say, we're thinking too small, we need to reframe, right? And it's more of a founder CEO, but Reed Hastings similarly says, obviously when he started Netflix, the game they were playing was not how to be the biggest mail order DVD company in the world, right? He never let the company lose sight that their game was actually how do we transform entertainment and, and transform the experience for our users, which gave them the permission and the courage to cannibalize themselves and to go into streaming and to do all those things. So some of the examples around being bold in setting direction is really that unique role the CEO can play in thinking big. And to your point of what's evolving, I would think in the pandemic, this is one that's really evolved. I think we all learned through a crisis that companies can move 10 times faster and bolder than they ever thought possible. So digital transformations that were scheduled to take three years, companies accomplished them in six weeks because they had to. They pivoted entire supply chain. So I think this notion of being bold and that we can do more, bigger, faster than we ever thought is something that's actually really evolving and expanding in terms of how CEOs are thinking. That would be one. 
does that kill people? If you if you if you do something in six weeks, it's supposed to take three years. In, in other words, I get that every once in a while you have to do those kinds of things. But if they're thinking that kind of bold every time, is that sustainable? I'm just trying to understand it. Yeah, no. And I think, sure, there's certain, obviously you don't want a pandemic and a massive crisis all the time. You can't live in that kind of adrenaline. But I think the more thoughtful CEOs are starting to say, well, what was it that enabled our organizations to move so quickly? And are there some lessons learned from that that we want to carry forward? So a couple of the things that were different from how organizations operated. One, the leadership teams were meeting in many cases almost daily for quick stand-up meetings and just you know whipping through the agenda and making decisions, frankly, with incomplete information because they didn't have it, but they were making quick calls. They weren't letting things percolate up through seven layers of management and PowerPoint presentation and all the cottage industry around that that creates bureaucracy, they were picking up the phone and calling the front line and saying, what do you need, right? That's another way of working that isn't necessarily harder on the organization. In some ways, it's easier because you're you're getting rid of a lot of that layer and a lot of that extra politicking that was getting in the way in the past. You know, there were other things that organizations were doing to keep a pulse on their employees, and make sure they were constantly pivoting quickly on what do people need? How do we need to operate? Are we being responsive to our customers? I think a lot of those practices we could carry forward, even without the extremeness of the pandemic, and frankly, lead to faster, sort of more healthy organizational life for everyone. You just led me to the question that I was wanting to ask, which is, will they carry it forward? So the pandemic may or may or may not be over, but to the extent that it is over, are these new behaviors, these new practices hardwired enough that this is how organizations will run going forward, at least in these top organizations that you studied? I think it needs to be an intentional choice. I don't think it's going to happen necessarily by itself, but it leads to the second mindset, which is all around how they managed and align the organization where the real thinking of these excellent CEOs, the mindset was, we treat the soft stuff as if it's the hard stuff. And what they meant by that was all of the culture, the employee engagement, the talent, all of those topics. As a CEO, I treat that with the same level of importance and rigor as I do an operational initiative. So I'm not going to leave it just to HR. I'm not going to leave it to best effort spaces. I'm going to make sure we know Look, if it's a cultural shift or something we're committing to for our employees, how will we measure it? How will I hold my leaders accountable for it? How will we hardwire it into our processes, to your point? How will I role model it? How will I build the skills to be able to lead in this way? The CEOs we talked to were very, very intentional about the org and and culture and talent side of things, and they weren't leaving it to chance, right? I think Satya Nadella at Microsoft is a great example of this, where the massive change he's been driving over several years now towards a learning mindset and a growth mindset is something he spends real time on as a CEO. He asks about it. He invests in it. He tells stories about it. He holds leaders accountable if they're not out there role modeling it. And he's been talking about it now for five years, right, relentlessly. And so treating with that kind of importance, I think, is what makes the difference. How many years have you been at McKinsey? Since 2000. So coming on 22 years. So over those, if you were have a timeline from 2000 to 2022, at what point did you start to observe that CEOs were treating, in your words, the soft stuff like hard stuff with the same rigor as operations and sales. When did that happen and what caused it to happen? Yeah, so I think it definitely has been an evolution. I think we're in a very different place than we were 20 years ago. And I'm not sure that necessarily all CEOs are doing it. I do think this is one of the differences between those who get it and are high performing and are doing it well are, and not everyone's fully there yet. I think some of what's enabled it to get there is bringing, frankly, some rigor and analytics to that space, right? So there's actual ways now of measuring not just employee engagement, but what is a healthy culture of an organization, Mm -hmm. right? How do you measure that? How do you understand if that's happening or not? Even from a talent point of view, I've seen CEOs where instead of having the list of high potential leaders, you know, the usual suspects that they Mm -hmm. talk about all the time. Top talent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They actually have a view of based on our strategy, 
What are the hundred roles that matter most that are going to make or break where we're going as a company where, frankly, we can't afford not to have A players in those roles? And to be successful in those roles, what are the skills and mindsets we're going to need? Now let's look at our talent and see if we're mapping people appropriately, right? It's a very rigorous, it's brought a science to it that I think we didn't have before. And frankly, I think HR in that space has upped its game in some places Mm. to bring that level of people analytics that wasn't available before. And then I think, frankly, CEOs or the good ones, at least, have realized that they can't accomplish anything without a healthy organization, right? And I think it's proven time and again that these roles, these companies are too big and complex. You've got to mobilize everyone And mobilizing them means winning their hearts and minds and making sure everyone understands and is bought into where you're going and is set up for success. And I think the good leaders have realized that it makes good business sense to do this well. So the Great Recession, how have these 200 CEOs responded to that? So on one hand, you have people matter. Certain roles are essential that we have A players in them, but that people generally matter. And then we lose 45 million people in jobs in one year. And the numbers continue to be like 4 million a month so far this year. So that seems to be quite disruptive, particularly if you're in the industries that are getting hardest hit. The CEOs and the companies that you studied, the ones that you admire most, have they done something different to mitigate that turnover, even eliminate that turnover, or are they suffering the same way? I mean, I think everyone across industries is feeling some of that. I do think these CEOs are on their front foot, at least, of trying to get ahead of it in a couple of concrete ways. One is most of them have a pretty clear sense of purpose in their organization, purpose and values. And I think all the research is showing that's incredibly important for people as they make their employment choices. What is this organization setting out to do? What is it trying to accomplish in the world? And are its values in keeping with kind of my values and and what I want to be doing? And so smart CEOs can articulate that, have thought about it, and are out there telling that story repeatedly to all their stakeholders so people understand and can connect their day-to-day work to that. I also think even in the world of remote, and I know everyone is kind of evolving that process, but through the pandemic, A lot of companies who've done it well actually saw some of their employee engagement scores go up. And a number of the CEOs we talked to saw the engagement go up and people really connect. And I think part of it is while we were all remote and it was a horrible pandemic and we had George Floyd and all these other things going on, at least in America at the same time, there was a humanity that came to business that I think we haven't seen in a long time. And people talked about how, well, you know, my CEO is jumping on Zoom and talking to a thousand employees from their couch at home while their kids are playing Lego in the background and they're not scripted in a studio with their comms person where it feels like a stilted message mm-hmm. and people are accessible and they're admitting they don't know all the answers because frankly, we're moving so quickly. We're all figuring this out together. There was a little bit of, in those who did it well, a humanizing that came through all of this. I think people were Many cultures of companies were more open to talking about everything they were juggling outside of work and they were kind of all navigating it together. And I think for those companies that welcomed that, it has brought people together. I think the question now is as we move back to hybrid or in in person in some cases, how do we not lose some of that? There was some goodness there that I think people want to keep. So you're going to get a hallelujah from people listening to this because that's really what we're all about here. And you use the word humanity and humanizing, and it would seem just patently foolish to walk away from what you've already realized, which is the more you care about people genuinely, the more you represent yourself authentically and define who you want to be as a company and you attract the right people, that people are going to be happier, they're going to be more productive and more engaged. So you even have the metrics around that. So it makes me wonder, are companies then redefining who and what skill set, what mentality, if you will, people they choose for management roles will be in the future? Is that being altered at all in light of this? I think people are working through that. I mean, I'll tip my hand on this one in that I hope that's where we're going. I do think folks are still in that 
interim place of figuring out what all this means and what the implications are, right? We knew what life was before the pandemic. We knew what it was like during. And I think companies and leaders are figuring out going forward, what will be our model? Everything from the tactics of in-person versus not, but even in terms of almost resetting the norms of leadership and the relationship between employees and work. I think all of that right now, both employees and companies are kind of reevaluating that social contract, if you will. And I think we're all going to learn and kind of experiment over this next little while in terms of what that needs to look like. I do think that the smart leaders will recognize that there was some game from the pandemic and carry it forward. I suspect there'll be some tougher lessons learned as people, there'll be some folks who'll try to snap back to the way things were mm-hmm. and get organ rejection and then, you know, have to figure out the new model. So I had two questions that popped into my head there. One is, it seems like CEOs are the ones that are having the hard time keeping the rubber band stretched out. You know, I just read an article or it was an editorial in the Wall Street Journal where a healthcare CEO was saying that basically people 20 to 30 years old that are working from home are going to be forced back to work and have a kind of a comeuppance, <laughs> you know, because the tide's going to turn and employers are going to have the upper hand. And I'm like, why would you even think like that? But the other thing I wonder is, from your own perspective, if I were a top CEO and I said to you, based on everything you've learned, particularly what you've learned over the last two years, define the kind of person who is going to be a highly effective manager at every level, but specifically more of a starting point of managing 10, 15 people. What does that look like to you? Who would you hire? What are the traits? What are the skills? Mm. I mean, I think if I reflect on what we learned from these CEOs and kind of 99% of it applies to all leaders, right? I do think a lot of the mindsets and skills apply, right? And it starts with, is the person able to translate the bigger vision or direction of the company down to create meaning in the work that their team is doing? Can they connect the dots for people Because I don't think people are willing to come to work anymore and just put their head down and do day-to-day work. It doesn't feel connected into something bigger. And so can the leader kind of make that connection for people and help them understand? I do think this idea of soft stuff is the hard stuff, right? Do Do they realize the importance of the team and having the right talent on the team and creating a healthy work culture that's important to get the best out of people and also kind of attract and retain them? Do they really believe that? You know, I think there's something about, and we haven't touched on it as much, but their own personal effectiveness and operating model, right? As a leader, do they realize what is their value add as a leader versus how are they going to get the most out of their team? Again, I think in many contexts, we're past the point of kind of top-down hierarchical leadership, not just because people reject it, but because it actually doesn't work in terms mm-hmm. of the complex <laughs> problems that folks mm-hmm. are solving. And so does the leader kind of understand that their role is actually to be a coach and to ask good questions and to hold people accountable, but not necessarily to micromanage, right? That doesn't enable and equip your team. I mean, this is a big shift. What percentage of organizations do you think have made it? Mm -hmm. I don't think many have made it top to bottom. I think it's evolving. And I think it's something you, you both have leaders realizing the importance of this and starting to push down. And then at the same time, you have employees demanding a different kind of work contract pushing up. I feel like the squeeze, a lot of the squeeze is probably going to happen at that kind of permafrost layer of you know, senior <laughs> middle management. And, and I think that's where we might, you know, it raises the real question. What is the value add of those layers and of those roles? And in an empowered organization that's flatter and moving quickly, I don't know how much room there is for layers whose only job is to kind of push the PowerPoint up or down. Very interesting. One of the things that you stressed in the book is the top CEOs have this really exceptional ability to deal with uncertainty. And since we've always been having uncertainty, there is no guarantee in life. You know, no matter how well you plan, you have no guarantees of outcomes. But that's been brought to our attention (laughs) rather directly over the last few years. But these CEOs have, they've seized it. They're not afraid of it. 
And I think that, you know, when you look at mental health and anxiety and depression that we're seeing in society, I suspect that some of it is the illusion of control has been lost for some people. And when you're looking at an ambiguous world and you're looking at a lot of uncertainty, it creates a lot of discomfort for people. But your CEOs, a lot of them demonstrated, like, this is just another day at the office for me. So what did you observe? Yeah, I mean, I think you named a lot of it, right? And I don't know which is the cause and which is the effect, but Mm -hmm. certainly a number of these CEOs, their sense of identity and value wasn't coming from believing they always had all the answers. And it's possible that in past generations, there were CEOs who they thought that was their role and that was really important to them, right? They were sort of the all-knowing person who would have all the answers and then they would cascade it down. And I don't know if it's because of the complexity and scale of these companies now that you couldn't possibly know it all or the uncertainty that you're describing. But if you can release yourself of that constraint that you think you have to know it all, it actually frees you up in many ways, right? It frees you up to have a learning orientation, to be asking good questions. It frees you up to admit when you don't know something, but still be able to make decisions based on kind of imperfect information It opens you up to this idea of rapid test and learn, right? And that, look, we're not going to make some huge decision that we can never come back from. So let's always just be learning and testing and tweaking and and moving when you go. But you're only open to all of that if you have the confidence to believe you're a great leader, even without knowing everything. Mm -hmm. And you have an openness to kind of learning. And in a way, your job is to facilitate the organization getting to the right place. It's a very different orientation. So more humility, less ego? Yeah, I think a fair bit of that. And a learning mindset and curiosity. That's wonderful. You write about the lottery ticket effect. I thought this was really cool and had to be brought out. So tell us about this and how managers can use it. Yeah, I mean, the lottery ticket story is a set of research that's been happening in psychology for a long time. But it has a real lesson learned for how you build buy-in and ownership in your organization. And so here, the experiment they've run for many years is they have a room full of people. They divide them into two groups. One side of the room, they hand them a ticket with a lottery number on it and say, that's your lottery number. In a minute, we're going to, you know, draw something out of a hat and you'll know if you won or not. The other side of the room, they hand a blank piece of paper and they say, write your own number between one and X. That's going to be your lottery ticket number. And just before they go to the front of the room to pull it out of the hat, the winning ticket, they pause the experiment and they send a bunch of like grad students back out onto the floor and they're trying to buy back your ticket. How much would you sell that ticket for before you know if it's a winner or not, right? And what they're trying to understand is how much more, if anything, do you have to pay those who have written their own number versus those who have been given a number? You know, any rational, pure rational person should say there shouldn't be any difference, right? Or or if you get really fancy, you say maybe you pay less to the people who wrote their own number because there might be duplicates and they have to share the prize. I mean, you can get all fancy. It turns out that they've never found that you have to pay the people who chose their own number any less than five times more to buy back their ticket than the people who were given a number. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary, right? Five times more, they're somehow wedded to this number. They think it's a winner just because they picked it. You know, we talked to a lot of the leaders about that. And a lot of these CEOs have found some way in their organization to have people feel like they've written their own lottery ticket about where we're headed as a company and they get invested in it. It doesn't mean that you throw open the strategy as a blank piece of paper and you have everyone decide. But given where you're going as a company, have you given a chance for everyone to say, what's my role in that? What is the work that my team does and how that will contribute? Am I signing up for this? Am I getting on the bus? And taking that bit of extra time that it takes to have that happen really pays dividends because the amount of buy-in you get for the long haul of the ups and downs is just immeasurable. So how do they do this? Like, what would the exercise look like if you had a team of people and you were trying to inspire them this way? What would you do? Sure. A couple of CEOs have taken it very literally. So one banking CEO, they had written kind of the change story of where the bank was going and where it was going to head. And they'd shared that and why it was important to them and what their commitments were to make that happen. And they'd shared it with their top team, with their direct reports. And they had each of their direct reports kind of take that story and summarize it in a paragraph, 
And then I had a second paragraph, which was, well, so here's what my function or business unit is doing to be part of that story. And that process cascaded down in that case all the way to the tellers and the branches at the front line, where every teller had like a little thing they'd handwritten and stuck up in their workstation, which is like how what I do every day is contributing to this bigger mission as a company. Now, that's a very literal interpretation, right? A different one, and it's not in the book, but David Farr, who's at Emerson Electric, he did it through asking questions. So they had three big themes around innovation, working across silos, and coaching. Those were like three big things they needed to shift in their company. So everywhere he went for 18 months, whether it was at the coffee machine or wherever he went, he would ask people three simple questions in the hallway. What's an innovation you're working on? Who are you working on that with? Who's outside of your group? And when was the last time you got coaching from your boss? Now, the first time he asked the question, you know, some people had answers, some didn't. But you better believe that word spread pretty, pretty quick that he was asking. <laughs> the next time he came around, you had a good answer, right? You were working on something. You were, you were part of it. Yeah, that's how change occurs, though. That's, exactly. that's really wonderful. I love that. That's really great. Former Cleveland Clinic Toby Cosgrove, who I interviewed once, he used to have his chief experience officer. He's a world-class, maybe at least America's greatest heart surgeon, who later became the CEO of the Cleveland Clinic, which is perhaps most illustrious heart care hospital in the world. And he used to have his HR director, chief experience officer, grade and rank every doctor in his hospital. And you wrote about this, and I thought, this is an interesting practice. Do you agree with it? Do you like it? Did it have good outcomes? Did it build resentment? What do you recommend? He did a number of interesting things to really build up the culture, but also the sense of purpose and accountability at Cleveland Clinic, right? And just in the spirit of another story that he did, and we can link the two together, is he did something which at the time was pretty radical. He had badges, like pins that you would wear, made up for everyone in the organization that said, I'm a caregiver. And he gave them to everyone, from the maintenance staff to the cafeteria to the doctors to the administrators. Everyone wore these pins every day that said, I am a caregiver. And can you guess who do you think was least happy about that? I read the book, so I know the doctors bristled. It was the doctors, right? Mm -hmm. The doctors bristled because they're like, wait, no, 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 no. I'm the caregiver, right? Like that, that's what we do. It's not all these other people. That's not what they do. But it was a really symbolic thing where he wanted to help them all realize we're all in this together in service of our patients, and we need to work together to make that happen. And it's only in kind of being honest with ourselves and coming together to see how we make that happen. And I think he, he brought a similar ethos to kind of the grading that you talked about, right? It was all in service of patient outcomes and trying to take some of the ego out of the system. He accompanied it with a bunch of things that are very radical in healthcare, where in terms of how his doctors got paid, and there was a bunch of other things to pull them together as a team that maybe reduced some of the competitiveness you would have seen had he done that kind of grading in other places. So it was all part of a system of things that he did together that made it work. You wouldn't want to do that just on its own without all those other supports around it. Thank you. That's great context. There's no mention of employee engagement in your book. And I know you are up to date and you've probably seen that Microsoft has taken it to a new level. And rather than emphasize engagement, they're emphasizing specifically employee thriving, which is just a illustrious word, just fantastic focus as far as I'm concerned. But obviously engagement is the predecessor and still the focus of many organizations. And yet it didn't come up in your book. And so amongst all stakeholders, where do you think employees rank amongst these CEOs? I think it's incredibly important. And whereas we may not have used the specific phrase in spirit, we absolutely have it there. We talk a lot about culture. And I think the way we think about culture and healthy cultures of an organization, employee engagement is a central piece of that. It's about how motivated and engaged are employees. Are they aligned on our purpose and direction? Do we make it easy for work to get done? Or is there a lot of friction in the system? There's about nine attributes that we talk about in terms of a healthy culture. And employee engagement is woven throughout all of those. So it's certainly not that we don't think it's important. We maybe just expanded the definition a little bit to say it's employee engagement and these other aspects of the culture or the work environment that are critical. So I think we're in, in harmony on that one. We just use slightly different language. Okay, that's good. 
I'm just absolutely in massive admiration of that. I mean, it's much more of a compelling focus for a manager to say, let's focus on employee well-being than engagement. And engagement has always had this sort of elusive understanding. You know, it means so many things. Well-being, a lot more clarity around that. But I wonder, in light of engagement and in light of the documentation that shows that the numbers really haven't meaningfully improved over the last 15 years, what your take on that is. That the engagement and thriving numbers haven't improved? Yeah, I mean, nationally, internationally, global engagement has not improved in at least 15 years. America's engagement has not improved significantly you know, two, three points, maybe it represents millions of people, but it's still as a percentage, very, very low. And so these CEOs are focusing on it. How come we're not seeing the numbers improve? And I think about employee engagement. And as we said, the numbers overall maybe haven't shifted. I think what gives me hope and excitement is for companies who have prioritized it, they can meaningfully move the needle and they have. So again, you look at companies who've done well on whether it's engagement or cultural health broadly, right? Creating work environments where people can thrive. When you focus on it, you can make improvements. And we've seen that in spades with our clients. But it takes real focus. You need to be clear on what the root causes are. You have to be honest with yourself about what you're willing to change and evolve. And then you need to think about all four levers, right? The senior leader role modeling, the compelling story and understanding about who we're trying to be, the skill building, the hardwiring into formal mechanisms. You need to work the whole system to make it a priority. And you're seeing organizations that have actually significantly moved the needle. So you're encouraged by the Absolutely. I'm encouraged. But it takes real work and you can't do it on everything all at once. You need to pick your themes, right? Satya has done it around growth mindset because they saw that as a big unlock and now it's well-being. You know, I get a bit worried about companies who have a long list. So they're trying to shift, <laughs> I do too. right? Mm-hmm. They're trying to be innovative and customer focused and move fast and well-being and this and this. Mm-hmm. You're probably not going to make progress on anything. Any of them. Another thing that you wrote about, Carolyn, is that you said that the top CEOs strongly adhere to servant leadership principles. And this is the only time in the book where I was like, Really? So it raised my eyebrows and because I think about some of the styles of uh, Jamie Dimon at J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, Reed Hastings at Netflix, and there are others that definitely don't exhibit that on any level. So do you really think this is true? Of course you do, because you wouldn't have written about it. But what are the most important emerging qualities of top performing workplace managers along these lines? So is it true? And what are the the emerging qualities of managers that you see happening now, i.e. at the CEO level that may not have been there two years ago? I think it links back to some of what we were talking about earlier. I think there's a recognition, at least, remember, these CEOs had all been in role for at least six plus years, many of them much, much more than that. And so whether they came in with that mindset or they have it now, they've all realized that this job is almost superhuman, right? The expectation It's too big for one person to know it all and to do it all and to make it all happen. And I think they've all either already knew or have learned that their only way of being successful is in working through others. All of them talked about their leadership team, really their role being to coach and enable their leadership team to run the place, right? And that their job was to make sure that team was effective and high performing and working well together. And then that team's role was to make that happen further down. And so I think it comes from a recognition of, I can't single-handedly make this place work, right? I just, it's physically not possible. And so I've got to find a way to work in service of others and to make that happen. Now, people do that in slightly different ways, but they'd all sort of reach that point of realizing that their job was to make everyone else successful. It just has to be, or they can't be successful. After all of this work has all been done, who are the, besides perhaps Satya Nadella, who you've mentioned, and I'm certain from your book, greatly admire, who are some of the CEOs that our audience might want to know you came away just feeling tremendous respect? The easy answer is obviously respect for all of them, in part because the job is just so hard. I think I gained a new appreciation for that and the scrutiny that they were on. I think some of the interesting CEOs were some of the ones that maybe aren't household names as well. You think about a Doug Baker, who was CEO of Echo Lab for over a decade, 
out of Minneapolis. And what he did with that company, it's essentially sort of a, a cleaning services company, but they not only transformed and grew and outperformed, but created a wonderful work environment for his people and really took their ESG agenda seriously, right? You can imagine a company in cleaning could have all kinds of potential challenges, water usage, chemical usage, all those things, mm-hmm. industrial. And, and they were able to take kind of a, not just a pretty poster on the wall in terms of commitment, but transform that company into one that really was walking the talk. He has these great quotes about, you know, you can't do evil from nine to five and then write big checks at night to make yourself feel better. And and he talks about how you have to, they needed to find a way that they were doing good in the world while their company grew and that those two things were together. And so I think there's some really inspiring leaders who found ways to both build amazing companies, transform them, and also sort of do good on multiple dimensions. And so some of those kind of lesser known names like a Doug Baker, I think are exciting. Great. So, Carolyn, we want to take a brief departure from our conversation and move into what we call the heartbeat round to help us learn about you more personally. I'm going to ask you several questions that we want you to answer instinctively and quickly. In other words, in a heartbeat. Are you game? Let's do it. Okay. Greatest new insight you gleaned from writing your book? That these CEOs are humans too. They struggle and they're trying to do their best. And I just have an appreciation for them. One trait that will become far less valued in leadership going forward and one that is suddenly emerging in importance. And the less valued we've talked about, which is the all-knowing leader. I don't think anyone expects it and it's not the right answer. I think the one that's emerging in importance is probably the importance of stakeholder listening. There's just so many voices now and you're trying to integrate all their points of view. And how do we navigate that? One book of any genre you wish everyone in the world would read, or at least all of us listening. (laughs) <laughs> I have little kids, and so I read. Uh, I read a lot of a lot of kids' books. I'm trying to think what's a good one. I don't know. With, with my kindergartner, we're doing lots of books about manners and values. I think us all going back to our roots on some of those is good. You're reading Emily Post at home. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> the CEO above all others who deserves our greatest admiration. I know that came up earlier, but that's true. Oh gosh, um, I'm going to punt on that one. I'll come back to you. Your synonym for the word heart. Ah, there's so many places to go. I don't know. I just, uh, the word soul came to my mind, but that's a little cliche, but there's something about knowing your soul and seeing others as who they are. The quality that derails the most leadership careers. Getting wrapped up in their own self-interest in politics and not just delivering on their job. A lesson you wish you'd learned earlier in life. That I'm not doing anyone any favors by playing small. And that it's not self-serving to think bold and exciting things. That's okay. And in fact, it can be helpful. One thing you hope to see change in the world. There's many things, but as it relates to leadership, just an appreciation for different styles of leadership and that, you know, the world needs all of those styles to come together. I think we're out of the mold of just one, one version of what it looks like. One subject you think all leaders would be wise to bone up on. Um. Maybe just the personal work, do your own personal reflection, know your own issues so that you don't let them get in the way. Prediction about the future, you're pretty certain will come true. (laughs) I'm sitting here with my glasses on and I always think our grandkids are going to think it's nuts that we walked around with little round discs of glass strapped to our face. (laughs) The trait you admire most in other people. Not taking themselves too seriously. A cultural value every organization should have. integrity and like really meaning that not just a poster on the wall skill improvement you're working on right now um there's so many uh what am i working on right now pushing myself to be have a little bit more discipline a lot of these ceos were so intentional about how they spent their time and what they got involved in and didn't and i think that would be good that's good for me to work on and an author of any genre who's had the most influence on your life oh my goodness you're a big reader i can tell let me think um Okay, so this is a goofy one. I read cookbooks, like as a book, which is very odd. And so I, I, yeah, I love, I'm very Northern California, like Alice yeah. Water, all those, you know, oh. that whole thing mm-hmm. just makes me happy. Oh, that's wonderful. I know that restaurant. Finally, what's one piece of advice you'd give to every manager about how to really excel as a leader going forward? Mm. 
I mean, I think even for folks who have strong aspirations for where they might want to go in the future, there's no reason why you can't just start leading that way now, right? So in terms of thinking big, being thoughtful about your team, your stakeholders, all of these things, we can all be doing that every day. And I think it it both sets you up for the future, but it also delivers a great experience in your current role. I threw that question in at the end, and I'm so glad I did because you just punctuated everything that we talk about here, which is don't wait. You may never be managed the way you want to be managed, but you can certainly manage people the way you believe they need to be managed. And that's just what you said. And what a wonderful way to complete the heartbeat round. Great great answers. So thank you for going through that with me. Oh, thank you, Mark. So we've covered a lot of ground of your book, but certainly not all of it. So I want to turn the stage over to you before you go and ask, is there something really important that I neglected? Or is there an idea that you want floating around in the minds of our audience once the podcast is over? Yes, only one that we've touched on already a little bit to underscore it is, well, the book is called CEO Excellence. I think what we learned is that 99% of these mindsets apply broadly to all leaders. So the stories that are in there, the examples, the bringing to life, at least I know for all of us, we've started applying them in our day-to-day and I think everyone can. And so just thinking about What does it mean to lead in this day and age? And tons of practical examples of what that can look like. I found that inspiring. That's actually a really fantastic way of ending it because as I'm reading your book, obviously I'm thinking, I don't know how many CEOs we have listening, but it's certainly not the the largest share of our audience in terms of their job family. So in terms of thinking as for my audience and the relevance, it came very clear that these are practices that CEOs are using to run their companies, but that all of us should be using, as you pointed out. I also think what's really helpful from your book, Carolyn, is we all want to know that our CEOs are getting it. We want to know that our CEOs are understanding what we're understanding, where we're interacting with people and we're seeing the impact leadership has and we're seeing the stresses that people are in and the well-being that is obviously now a focus in some organizations but hasn't been. And the collective understanding that, as you pointed out earlier, that You just absolutely have to have really great, talented people in most of your key positions if you're going to thrive. And if you don't create an environment where people are attracted to that and want to be committed to being a part of that, you're simply never going to succeed. We all want to know our CEO is like that, not just the 200. And I think that's the most encouraging part of this is that everyone you talk to, you're seeing a major shift. Absolutely. That's what keeps me excited. (laughs) Well, thank you so very much. Thank you so very much for joining us. I love your book. And you're a very gracious person to interview. I don't know if anyone's ever told you that before, but you're very talented at, I'll call it the back and forth. And it makes for a a very interesting conversation. So I I want to compliment you. I've enjoyed it as well. So thank you. This has been really fun. Thank you again. And best to you. To find out how you can hire me as a speaker, please go to my website, markccrowley.com. And as we say goodbye, I'll ask you to please introduce our podcast to your friends and colleagues. Your referrals mean so much to our success. Please never underestimate that. I want to thank my talented and wonderful team, Mr. Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Randy Yant, Carrie Finnessy, and my producer, Eric Oz. Our brilliant theme music is the jazz classic Take the A-Train, written by Billy Strayhorn nearly 75 years ago. It was originally performed by Duke Ellington, and our version is performed by the masterful BBC Big Band Orchestra. And now I will leave you with my two consistent reminders. Number one, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. And number two, love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. Thank you.